Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is Reality Check Radio, RCR, and on this Wednesday afternoon, let's talk sport, but not necessarily previewing or reviewing on-field action. Today, we want to talk about injuries and health and the impact long-term injury or a debilitating illness can have on an athlete's career and on their state of mind. Uh, the most recent high-profile athlete to succumb is New Zealand's best cricketer, Kane Williamson, out of action with a knee injury sustained while playing in the Indian Premier League. With me, a man who was an elite athlete, a man whose career was effectively ended by ill health and injury, when he was at the peak of his career. Former PGA Tour golf professional, Phil Tautarangi. Phil, thanks for joining us here on RCR. And I suspect that this is a topic very close to your heart and something that you would think about pretty much every day of your life still, wouldn't you? Yeah, unfortunately, Pete, and nice to be on with you. Yes, it, I guess in, in personal experience and having the scars, um, both mentally and physically, uh, that have been inflicted with uh, having a, a career filled with um, different injuries, you you do look now sitting back as a fan and look at different athletes and different sports people and, and follow their careers and um, and then wonder also just what's going on when you don't see them on TV or you don't see them on the field you don't see them doing what they're there to do um, because not always uh, the the rehab that is done with physios and trying to get back on the paddock from physical injuries, not always are they the, the, the toughest part to overcome. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it is close to heart and mind, but mainly because of, um, because of personal experience. Okay, well, let's talk about your own experience. You won on the PGA Tour. You were going really well, and we're, we're talking, well, the best part of 20 years ago now, aren't we? You won a tournament, uh, you won a few million dollars, things were going swimmingly, you were on your way up the world rankings, and then, what, heart, back, uh, it, it just didn't stop, did it for you? Yeah, look, I'd, uh, unfortunately, I'd had a bit of a history leading up to that point with a few niggly injuries, and um, I guess we just kind of got to that stage where I'd been doing it for nearly 10 years as a professional. Um, and, you know, it, it made some progress. I was competing in the world's toughest arena, I guess, as, as far as professional golf was concerned. And um, I think I'd kind of got to that stage where I'd started figuring myself out. And um, and so I started to play and, and achieve at the level that I'd always aspired to. Um, and then the 2002 season came along. I, I had several bouts uh, with superventricular tachycardia, was tough for me to even say, um, superventricular tachycardia, basically rapid heart heartbeat. And um, although the the symptoms of uh, SVT uh, resemble uh, something similar to a, a heart attack. They're actually the symptoms are, are not life-threatening at all. However, should you have some of those symptoms whilst you're driving or whilst you're walking down the steps, then you know, injury could could compound quite a lot more. And I was having these bouts whilst I was on the golf course, and so it wasn't helping my performance. 
And so there was a number of different beta blockers that uh, could be prescribed to kind of control my heart, heart rate, I guess. Um, but ultimately, the, the side effects of those were impacting performance as well. So I ended up having an ablation. And of all places, in, in addition to that, is a Kiwi ended up doing it for, for me in one of the big hospitals in Dallas. So that was um, that was a nice connection. The ablation went well. Um, I was back on walking around one of the hilliest golf courses on the PGA Tour within seven or eight days and largely haven't had any in. Uh, problem since, but prior to that stage, it was certainly impacting performance because I'd had these bouts, and um, you know I'd go from a playing heart rate of maybe you know 80 beats per minute um, and, and trying to control breath and, and, and heart rate, obviously, to um, something over 200, and that wasn't that ideal for for holding your nerves, so to speak, in, in, in professional arena. But I think the the injuries that, that ultimately ended up having a really big impact on on my career were the back surgeries that I had in 2003 and 2005 following that success in 2002. And, um, you know, I think that at that stage, you know, as you mentioned, I was starting to hit my straps. I was starting to figure my body out. I was starting to figure my mind out and my game out. And, um, and when you have a couple of back surgeries, uh, disectomies, then it's going to make it tough to practice, play, compete at the same level. And, and ultimately, my back got back to being in good shape. But mentally, I never really got that edge back in my game again. So it was injury and ill health that's brought to the end, really, a, a glittering playing career. I just wonder how you felt when you had that realisation, when you had to say to yourself, it's over, I can't do this anymore, uh, my health and my injuries have affected me so much in other ways that I can't be competitive. How did you feel yourself that it's all over? Yeah, pretty pissed off, to be fair. Um, in in some ways, you, I, I felt a little bit cheated uh, that, you know, worked hard and, and dreamt hard for, for a number of years on getting to the stage I, I was just kind of getting to. And then, you know, injuries are part of sport that no sports person or athlete most probably comprehends that at the start of their career, but they're also not disillusioned that if your body is one of your tools, um, that at some stage or another it's going to, um, you know, you're going to have to get pretty close to the red line and, and maybe even every now and then push over it, uh, even in non-contact sports, um, trying to find that extra 1% or 2%. And so probably at times your body's going to bite back and, and you're going to spend a, a period of time on the sidelines. But I, I, I don't think any sports person at any stage you know, spends too much time contemplating that the end is going to come because my body's going to fail me. And... Um, and that's that's not always that easy to rationalise with, and um, you you know the I, I guess there's the work that you do on your own personal development, not as not not as a professional athlete or as a professional sports person, the person just the person that you are to your wife, to your kids, to your to your family, to your friends, um, and, and building that life so that when or if the sport uh, is no longer able to be played, um, there is not that cliff that you fall off. Um, and although I'd done a fair bit of work on that um, and felt 
that I've had a fairly balanced life. That that morning that you wake up and um, you've made the decision that oh, look, my my body's not enabling me to do what I need to do to continue to compete at the highest level. Um, and and for me, my my body could do that on a short term basis, but it wouldn't allow me to do it over days on end and uh, weeks on end with any sort of consistency. And although I battled and tried to find that, I, I never quite could get it um, back. And, and so, yeah, look, I think the, that when that time comes, it's what's next. There's also, you know, that period of time where you look back and go, what if? Um, there, you know, there are things that I could have done differently. And, um, and, and there's a fair bit of time wallowing or contemplating how things could have been different. Because you look at the way things have turned out for your good friend, Stephen Elker. He's a contemporary of yours mm. from your amateur days in, in Waikato, uh, going back into the, the 1980s. Uh, he took a long time. He never reached the same heights as you did during his, his regular career, yet here he is at the age of 50 literally making millions. Do you think, gee... That could have been me. I could have be. I could be out there now, just uh, just creaming it because I could play as well as him, if not better than him, during the peak of our careers. Oh, I don't have any envy at all. Um, I have a whole heap of pride for Steve, and I'm 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 really pleased for him. Um, no, look, I've, I've, the time has moved on, and it's been over ten years since I last played competitively and, and walked away from that and, and walked into another. Area of, uh, of of golf in, in my career, so I'm, I'm I'm very comfortable with that. I still enjoy playing, and yeah, there's a little sparkle every now and then when when you string a few good shots together. Oh, geez, could I um could I go and do that? And, and I guess I'm fortunate enough that the sport that I have there's a there's a league for the old guys. Um, but no, no, no envy. Um, well, I, I guess it it, it points to. Um, for Steve, and he was an injury free through his career, but maybe nothing that that you know required surgery or required a period of time where he's on the sidelines. But he had plenty of niggles, and um, and it really does point to the commitment that he's had, especially in the last ten years. Where in the forties, and you've got other priorities in your life um, to be able to maintain the priority of looking after his body. And, and staying competitively fit and healthy to the point where when the door on the Champions Tour opened for him, or he prized it open, um, he was in good enough nick to, to take advantage of it. So, um, hey, look, no, that, that, doesn't, it, 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 that, that part doesn't gnaw away at me at all, but I guess as a fan, um, you know, the biggest name in the game, one of the biggest in the sport, has now had an injury um, that it is going to curtail his career. He had a number of injuries as well through knees and backs and whatever. You're talking about Tiger. Um, but I'm talking about Tiger, yeah. And when you have a look at um, the role that his body is now playing in inhibiting his, his, his playing schedule and his ability to compete, um, you know, the, the, the impacts that... Will, will play on him um, as he's going through this period of time where the sun's about to set and um, and and how is he going to deal with that will be very interesting to watch. 
Indeed. Well, that's golf, of course, which is a non-contact sport, and many people looking in at golf from the outside will say, how the heck can you get injured playing golf? Well, (laughs) (laughs) believe me, it's very possible because it's a sport about repetition, and even though it's non-contact, there's an awful lot of muscles involved. But let's talk about the sport, uh, the sports where there really is contact. And, you know, people who play professional rugby and get the, the contracts at a, at a young age, lots of money in their early 20s, are they told, do they know that they will have limited earning capacity and that there is every chance that their careers, if they're lucky, will last five, six years? I mean, Richie McCaw, frankly, is a freak, the fact that he went on for so long. But the reality is in a contact sport such as rugby and rugby league, you're not going to last very long in the game. So do, do players go into it with their eyes wide open, do you think, knowing full well that their careers could be over in a flash or could end at any time? Yeah, I think there's that, that reality. Even I think with a lot of data and anal- analysis nowadays that early in their careers it's made pretty clear that um, there are no guarantees. Uh, although there may well be contracts, there are no guarantees. And you know, I think... That, you know, if you take American sports, I think the NFL, the average career over there is less than four years. And so, although you may well be um, a superstar, there, you know, the the window of opportunity may well be, you know, you know very tightly jammed um, in a very short period of time. And um, yeah, I guess in this New Zealand context, that. What have we been? Professionals, uh, professional rugby is is up to twenty seven years or twenty six, yeah. twenty seven years. Yeah, nineteen ninety six so. it started. Um, yes. Yeah, and so I, I guess we're we're starting to get you know more accustomed. We're in a what third coming up third generation, I guess, of 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 players that when they started out, um, it was a bit bit of a novelty. Um, they didn't have to go to work. Uh, they could just train them and, and play all, all the time. There was plenty of rugby to play. Um, and, and now the schedule has changed quite considerably from, from those early days. And so I don't think any athlete goes in expecting to have a Richie McCaw sort of career because the the, the training rigours, the contact that's, that's coming on players um, means that you know the the body is is only so superhuman. The the, the rehab, the, the the technology and advancements in in medicine and 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 rehabilitation have have increased also. And so I think the you know some of the most important people on professional sports teams are the medical team and being able to get athletes back on the paddock. But we've also read the horror stories of of athletes coming back too early. And through different pressures, whether they be through from from owners or through um, you know requirements of the team at the time, wherever the team is sitting on the ladder at, at different ends of the season, um, and and players making decisions about their short term future that ultimately end up affecting their long term earning capacity or their long term career, and so. You know, I think the, the the world of 
injury prevention um, of injury treatment and then rehabilitation and, and getting back on on the paddock, so to speak, is a really interesting subject and and it's it's one that's not one size fits all, but um, players I think now you know, have that that realistic um, understanding that it may well be, although all there's all the promise in the world might be there, it may well be a very short career, and so the star may fade just as quickly as it ascends if uh, if, a, if an injury comes across and and shortens your your time at the top. You can go on all you like about uh, injury prevention and about the steps you take to keep yourself as uh, fit and as flexible and as strong as possible, but sometimes you just can't help it. I mean, look what happened to Kane Williamson, uh, a man who is supremely fit, very agile, yet there he is leaping to take a catch, comes down and he's buckled up, his knee is gone, he's out for... Who knows how long? Who who knows if he'll ever be able to to play again? Uh, so it can happen just in the blink of an eye, can't it? Particularly in sports where, even if they're not contact sports, where you you exert yourself uh, just in a split second, it, it can it can end a career, can't it? Quite literally, you're doing what you're paid to do, and um, yeah, look, I, the I guess the interesting thing for me, Pete, in in all of this. And, and maybe for those sports fans that are listening, that that are really interested in how does an athlete get back on the paddock? And look, he's done an ACL. That's uh, that's twelve weeks, and blah 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 blah. Um, there's a there's a protocol to follow, and um, and then he should be available to get back in the nets and back on the paddock again. The the intangible and the un- immeasurable. Um, is uh, the psychology of an injury and how it impacts an athlete's approach to, A, their self-worth. You know, they're they're being paid to to play, to be on the paddock, and now all of a sudden, you know, different stipulations in your your contract, you're um, you're not able to to be on the paddock, therefore you're not getting paid. Um, The the bills and responsibilities mount up, um, that starts having a, an impact on, on on the mind. But then there's also the, that, that second guessing. Um, I'm, I'm one of the best in the world. Will I be? Can I be? How long am I out for? Um, I think in the case of Williamson, it's it's not a case of selection. I think he's proven his, uh, his worth and, and should he get back to health will be welcomed back into whatever teams he's playing in. But uh, th- there is that moment where self-doubt can can creep in. And um, and that's the, 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 the work that the average fan probably doesn't see. Um, maybe even teammates don't don't even see where you have got to you know have that 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 alone time that 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 period of time maybe it's even working with with different head coaches mental coaches performance coaches to start building up that competitive sharpness again that the mind provides for for sports people and um you know that this is something that that you're never really going to quite get to the bottom of. It's a really interesting subject, and there is there's a lot of work being done on it nowadays. The the impacts of psychology 
on athletes when recovering from injuries. So from a personal experience, when, when you were going through some low times, when you you know knew that uh, the end was nigh, that you had to pull the pin on the career, did you consult with a psychologist, a psychiatrist to to get some counselling, to to see how you would fare beyond being a competitive athlete? Yeah, look, I, I worked with a few different psychologists at different stages through my career, all, all the way back to before I turned pro, in actual fact. And um, and when my father passed away, <clears throat> I I was really battling, battling mentally with, you know, what was the purpose in all of this, where um, when dad passes away as a teenager and trying to just get organised in your mind and be able to, you know, figure out the priorities of of life, and so um, at different stages worked with different people, and and so it wasn't a matter of um, you know the the emergency call to somebody to to sort out the mind. It was more of a, a progression, but there was certainly different conversations at different stages through my career with different things and with different injuries and um, and just where the mind was at at that time. Um, it was, as much as anything, at the end, the, my wife and I having those heart-to-heart conversations about, you know, what um, what does the next stage have in store and and trying to get clarity around around that. And, and as I mentioned, that, that distinction between the performance confidence and the personal confidence and making sure that the two don't collapse into each other, um, being able to have that that persona per se when you walked over the white line um, when you when you strapped your boots on and were ready to go and then that personal um, confidence that personal um, well-being shall we say which is a catch word these days um, how, how were you as a person when you weren't the sports person when you weren't the athlete when you weren't the person on TV when you weren't the person that was going to work just like everybody else how was that person dealing with um, probably an, an upcoming career change? And so, you look, it was. Um, um, I think that's still ongoing. Um, I'm ten years after um, after last handing in a, a scorecard of any importance, and that's still ongoing because um, it was a big part of our lives. And um, I'm fortunate enough to be close to the sport now and a sports fan of, of many other sports and athletes as well. Um, but it's something that really intrigues me and certainly as, does as a parent when you've got um, young kids and kids and, and their friends that are interested in pursuing sport for a career. So the role of the sports psychologist, the mental skills coach, uh, has really it, it's really um, increased significantly, hasn't it? Uh, there was a time well, yeah. not that long ago where sports teams, New Zealand representative teams, such as the All Blacks or the cricket team, would go away for tours of, say, England for two, three months at a time. Their only officials would be a manager and a coach. <laughs> Nowadays, uh, there is uh, a, a veritable team that goes with them, the nutritionists, uh, the the uh, physiotherapist and even a mental skills coach. So uh, people from the outside often scoff at the at the rise in the number of uh, team officials these days. But in top level sport, 
Uh, and, and I think it, it applies in golf as well, doesn't it? Individual golfers have uh, considerably large teams, especially the, the top players, the wealthy players. Uh, do you believe they're absolutely all necessary? Sometimes it can be overdone. There can be too many voices. Uh, I, t- I do agree with that. Um, and I think you know, with the evolving world of data and, and analysis, there is a thing of over-analysis and, 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 and over-analyzing a performance to the point where the athlete doesn't have clarity. They have a lot of great data. Uh, they have a lot of um, you know, people you know, having a look at where you can find performance increases, but that transference is where it's really important. Information's great. What do you do with it? And so I think there are cases where different athletes across different sports have, have maybe taken that too far and it's clouded the picture. Um, having said that, it, it's interesting and, and I think this is Gilbert and Oka's last go-round with the All Blacks and has spent a lot of time with a number of different sports teams um, counselling different athletes uh, and is still with the All Blacks that in, in recent times he's gone from a mental skills coach to an assistant coach. Um, such is the value of of being able to provide athletes with clarity, um, with the very very clear um, roles within a team, very very clear work ons um, both on and off the paddock, and and so that when the whistle goes, they're in the best nick, um, you know, in 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 all of their being not just in physical shape and not just understanding the tactics, um, but actually personally um, and in in and of themselves, their own self-evaluation of themselves um, is at the highest level so that they can execute when their role is called upon. And so I think the the role of of psychologists, um, and there have been a number of entered the game, not all are at the highest level, but those that um, that do work with with athletes and, and are able to improve their performance and and um, and get the very best out of or help athletes get the very best out of themselves uh, with um, with every grain of salt that they um, they come with. What about the drugs, the medicines that injured athletes take? Is there a danger mm. that many of them can be? Can become over dependent on them, uh, and uh, are there other are there other ways of uh, of of overcoming the injuries without the use of pharmaceuticals? Yes, I think there is, and I think there are a number of athletes. In fact, I know there are a number of athletes that resist uh, any use of of pharmaceuticals. Um, that they tend to lean far more on um, on psychology and then on uh, natural uh, supplements to um, to heal. Um, the, I think the world of of professional sport has become you know, so win now um, and, and at all costs, athletes being back on the panic, and so. There, there has been an era where um, maybe the long-term health of the athlete is not the top priority. It's about 
returning them to rapid you know, performing ability as quickly as possible. And we know that some anti-inflammatory drugs um, have you know have massive impacts on um, on the heart and liver. Um, however, you know, getting back on the paddock and, and being that that player to um, to be able to make a change, create a change, the, the cortisone injections that a number of athletes go through to be able to numb the pain so that they can get back on uh, and try and get through to the off-season where they can do something about it have been abused over the years. Um, it's it's also kind of bridges right on the edge of the, whole, the hairy old subject about performance-enhancing drugs as well. And... Um, and so, look, I think that's that's an evolving space where athletes usually, um, and it's an interesting subject as it pertains to the last couple of years, Pete, where athletes usually are so so cautious um, about what goes into their body because they, they're the ones who know best how their body responds, how it reacts. Is it helpful to my performance? Is it a hindrance? Um, and how does it treat me over the long term? That um, that when when this vaccine came around, um, or purported vaccine came around, how athletes, um, a number of athletes, um, said it was okay to put this in their, their body, not knowing fully what was what was in it, um, and was it going to be perform- helping their performance or hindering it? And so that was a, a, a really curious period of time and I think it will continue to be when looking back on history um, how blindly um, a lot of athletes chose to go down this, uh, this, 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 this direction possibly in some instances athletes would, were preferring not to and they didn't have a choice if they wanted to remain in the team this was um, this was mandatory and and then for those that chose not to, uh, the the impacts it's had on them and their psychology and their opportunities um, when they were choosing to say, hey, I don't know enough about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna wait this one out until I do find out some more, or I've done my research and I don't think this is right for me. Um, and how that's impacted their um, their careers. It's, it's really an interesting space. Well, Novak Djokovic was obviously the highest profile guy who did not take uh, the vaccine. Are there a lot more that uh, you know of uh, in, in golf and other sports who are not as prominent in their opposition to taking the vaccine as Djokovic? Yeah, I think there are there are a number of athletes on both sides, Pete. I think those that that finally took the vaccine that have had vaccine injuries, and they haven't been reported on. It, it, it amazes me when when players start having an injury, and for one reason or another, it's chosen not to report on that injury. Yet, if they were full, fell down and had a, a twisted ankle, or they um, they blew out a knee or a shoulder. That that would be front page, and so that's that's interesting. But I think there are a lot of athletes that, um, whether it be their sport that that didn't mandate it, or their teams that didn't mandate it. Uh, Aaron Rodgers is another athlete similar to Djokovic that's been 
you know, quite open and outward that that wasn't for him. Um, he he got around it with the Green Bay Packers and got around it with the NFL, but it wasn't without some wrestle and without some contention. Um, I think in, in in my sport on the PGA Tour, there was you know an unofficial poll of uh, around about sixty sixty something percent of players chose to get the vaccine early. There were different rules and regulations for different players through that period of time. Um, but it, as independent contractors, they had the choice to to do that. The PGA Tour didn't didn't stipulate it, um, and there are a lot of players that that chose to you know not disclose or declare in any way where where they stood. But there have been a number of players that have been quite open in their opposition, and um, those players have been their views have been suppressed, shall we say. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really an interesting, an interesting time in sport, Pete. Where um, you know, we've well, long have said, you know, do politics in sport um, do they relate? Do they interconnect? Do they overlap? Um, should they? I think it's pretty clear over this last period of time that um, that government policy and politics has has it. You know, I, I guess inserted itself into sport in in various different ways, and um, and the mandates was, was certainly something that was very prominent um, for that period of time. Uh, I I don't I'm not aware of whether there is still a mandate in place for different sports, but I know for that period of time there was uh, a lot of damage done psychologically to a lot of athletes with the way that they were treated for making a decision on, on what they want to put in their body. Mm, well, I think the big issue uh, for international or non-American players at the moment is that if they come from offshore, they can't. They still can't get into the US, can they? Djokovic, as things stands at the moment, still can't play in the US. He's hopeful of being able to get to the US Open by September when it's hoped that uh, President Biden will, will lift the restrictions. Uh, but that makes life pretty difficult for non-Americans at the moment, doesn't it? Wanting to uh, to play their trade in the richest sports market in the world. And then, of course, there was the, the story that came out. I think it was shortly after the Australian Open of, and I can't remember her name, one of the tennis players that was, um, you know, there's discrepancy on whether she had a a fake vaccine pass and. And how that was being perceived. Um, clearly, there was a decision made that that she wanted to continue playing. I don't know what her official status was, but inevitably, if there are rules that seem like they don't make sense or are unfair, there are people who are going to try and find their ways around it, uh, rightly or wrongly. So, um, I think the the standing of Djokovic is going to be really interesting in history. It's it's fair to say that. He's going to be odds on as the tennis player that goes down in history with the most Grand Slam titles to his name. Um, he's still got a few years left yet, and and you'd be a bit tough to, uh, to to think that he's not going to pick up one or two more. Um, but the stand that he's made over this period of time, saying that um, you know he's in control of his body, and it's something that's you know, in tennis, there has been performance-enhancing drugs that have popped up at different periods of time um, for different players. Um, 
but it's one of those things that players are encouraged that the responsibility is totally all yours. Um, whatever is found in your body after testing is um, is your responsibility. And so he's taken the stand that, hey, look, I didn't know what was in this and I don't think it was right for me. And so I'm going to put myself ahead of my career tally possibly. And um, and it's a, it's a massive stand. Um, you would be hard-pressed to suggest that Novak Djokovic is a threat to public health. Um, I, when you take a look at him, he's probably one of the healthiest, fittest um, people on the planet. Yet, uh, for some reason or another, he can't get into a country because it is deemed that he's unhealthy for 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 some reason for to, to be mixing with the public. So, look, it's a, it it really will be interesting over time, and maybe time is 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 the great revealer. Um, just with how how different athletes and different decisions over this last few years will be received and, and documented in history. Mm, I think uh, we could sum it up by saying Novak Djokovic is not a threat to public health, but he's a threat to the <laughs> prevailing political narrative in the United States, and that's why they won't let him over the border. Hey, Phil, this has been a fascinating conversation. I thank you so much for your time. I uh, I hope that, and I know that you're in a good space these days, having reached the half century of life and you're ready now for the, the good years, the golden years. Uh, you can look back on a very successful professional golf career, one which sadly was thwarted by ill health and injury, but uh, it's so glad, I'm so glad that you've you've come through to the other side and that life is good for you now. And I thank you for your insights into uh, what is a most fascinating topic. Great to have you with us here on uh, Reality Check Radio. Yeah, thanks, Pete. There's a lot of lot of interesting stories in sport at the moment and um, and it's been fun talking about talking about injuries and, and sometimes when, when players uh, um, are not back on the paddocks, just exactly why, and hopefully we've um, provided a bit of insight for the sports fans out there. Peter Williams from One O'Clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Committed to fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio.